When Jesus uses parables, the crowd become more obviously divided. That's what the parables do. Those who have been given understanding by God's grace and kindness, they're going to come to understand more and they're going to grow in their knowledge. And those who have not, they're going to become more perplexed. And Jesus says it is to clarify the distinction between those who see and those who do not. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller, and today we continue our series, Living as Kingdom People. And one of the things, Jonathan, as uh, you point out, is Jesus frequently spoke in parables as he spoke to the crowds around him. And it sounds like you're saying there is some intentionality. There was a reason that Jesus spoke in this way. The parables are very, very intriguing sections of the teaching of Jesus. Any of us who have spent time in the Gospels have a sense of that. They sort of draw us in, and they draw us deeper and deeper and deeper. And I think there's there can be a kind of caricature of the parables, you know, that they're just simple everyday stories that Jesus used to make things easier to understand. And of course, there are elements of the parables that come from everyday life, and we can latch on to them. But Jesus wants us to understand, in, in, in this passage we're going to spend time in today, that the parables are actually used as a kind of filter to show who are those who have been given spiritual insight by the Father above. And for those who have been given spiritual insight, yeah, the parables will open doors of understanding for them, and they'll go deeper and deeper and deeper. But other people will look at the parables and will just see see nothing, really, and there will be no spiritual insight, and, and actually the parables will end up dividing the crowd. It's a very, very intriguing thing. Well, we're going to look at that today from the book of Matthew, if you can. I hope you'll grab a Bible and join us in Matthew chapter 13 as we begin our message, Sowing the Seed of the Kingdom. Here is Jonathan. One of the great fascinations of our age, one of the scientific news stories really of our generation is the story of the development, isn't it, of these COVID vaccines. The world has watched with tremendous and understandable interest to see the development and then the distribution of these various vaccines in a time of crisis under a real time crunch. One of the closely watched facts surrounding the vaccines has been their projected effectiveness in warding off uh, infection and then hospitalization and so on for those who have received them. I gather that some have had a a projected effectiveness of something like, I don't know, 60%. Others claimed a much higher percentage in the 90s and so on. Going into a vaccination campaign like this in the time of a pandemic, governments and citizens around the world needed to be prepared with as many of the facts as they could muster. How effective will these shots be? Will they work for everyone who receives them? Will some still end up sick? Will some still go to hospital? If COVID doesn't disappear, if some people still end up unwell, does it mean that the vaccines have actually been a failure? We want to know what to expect, both individually and as a whole population. And the the message has been essentially this, as I've understood it. With every vaccine, results will vary. Not everyone will be spared infection. Expect a marked response, but also a mixed response to the vaccine. One of the issues we need to grapple with as believers in Jesus Christ is those who would both receive the word of Jesus personally and then spread the word of Jesus. One of the issues we really got to grapple with is this, the impact of the word, the the results of spreading the word, the success rate of gospel proclamation, it appears to be profoundly mixed 
does it not? There's real result in some, a lasting response from some hearers, but as we all know all too well, some will make an initial response to the Word of Jesus, to the Word of the kingdom, and then fade away, while others, they'll make no response at all. And we got to grapple with that reality as the people of God. In terms of our church's ministry, we see this all the time, of course, and we've got to have a framework, a theological framework for understanding it, for anticipating it appropriately and reacting rightly to it. This is true today, and it was true in the days of Jesus's earthly ministry. This is, in a sense, the burning issue that Jesus needs to confront at this point in Matthew's gospel. You see, Jesus has already been encountering very mixed responses from those who have heard him, from those who have seen his works. The religious leaders, people we might have expected to welcome him, they are, in fact, by this point in Matthew's gospel, plotting his death. In the previous chapter, Jesus has, has traced a line, you may remember, really a growing chasm between those who heed His Word and those who reject His Word, and He has shown us the dramatic distinction between those two groups of people. Now, here in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus steps back from the fray, as it were, and sets out for us a set of clear expectations for the kind of varied response that His Word will generate and elicit in any age. He doesn't quite give us sort of percentages based on clinical trials like the pharmaceutical companies might do, but he tells us clearly that there will be distinctive and mixed responses to his word, and we got to be ready for those responses. And perhaps more importantly than generalized expectations, Jesus prompts us here in these verses to consider our own personal response to his word warning us how easy it is to have the Word go in one ear and out the other and to have no saving impact on a heart that is not ready to receive it. To set out clear and realistic expectations for us, Jesus uses a parable, a story from everyday life, a story that illustrates the principle that he does want us to understand. Now, I'm going to say right at the outset that I don't intend to try to do anything clever with the structure of this particular passage. We're going to simply follow through the logic of Jesus and learn what he would teach us about the varied reception that his word will receive in hearts and lives. And so we begin with this parable, a parable to ponder. The image comes from the world of farming, of agriculture. A sower goes out to sow seed. We may not be so familiar with the imagery of a, a sower with a bag of seed scattering it by hand. These days it would be done by a machine in most cases, something big and green and made by John Deere probably. But actually the image here of a person with a bag of seed, it resonates with me just a little at the moment. We've been doing some landscaping recently at our place and a section of our lawn actually had to be regraded to help with some drainage and so on. And I, I, I knew that, and I looked at the situation and thought, oh, you know, that, that can't be too tough. That, that can't be too complicated a job. You know, I'm going to do that myself, save a little money, maybe get some exercise, you know, be good. No point hiring anyone to do that. I figured I'd need a fair bit of topsoil for the job, so I put in an order for 22 cubic yards of topsoil. <laughs> I couldn't really visualize what that would look like, I don't know if you can picture that from the chuckles I'm hearing from a few people. I think some of you can, but it sounded like it might be enough to do the job. Anyway, when the double axle truck came backing up the driveway, I began to realize what I'd signed myself up for as it proceeded to drop its entire load 
outside our garage. <laughs> and as I stood there helplessly with my little wheelbarrow and my, my shovel, <laughs> my heart sank a little. I don't know if any of the color drained from my face, but in any event, there, there preceded then a number of days of me quite literally staggering back and forth <laughs> behind this wheelbarrow, unloading load by load on my new mud pile in the middle of the lawn, raking the soil, and, and on it went, all in unseasonably hot weather, I might add. A friend came by while I was doing this, and she said she almost got sunstroke just watching me do this. It looked so exhausting. <laughs> Anyways, after many days of uh, shoveling and pushing and raking, then came the happy day, the day for sowing the seed, the new grass seed. Now, unlike digging, sowing is really quite a pleasant job. By its very nature, it fills us with optimism and happy anticipation. It's happy work, sowing, but it is also imprecise work. You take handfuls of these little seeds and you throw them roughly where you want them to go and you hope for the best. But what you discover a couple of weeks later is that your work has been a little bit uneven. In some places, there's fairly thick growth. In other places, there's really nothing at all. Anyway, here is the image. The sower goes out to sow some seed. Perhaps the seed is in a leather satchel or something, and he's, he's taking handfuls. He's scattering it here, there, everywhere. Some falls on the path. It stays right there on the, on the surface, easy pickings for the birds who come to devour them. When we seeded our lawn after all that work, I would wake up in the morning and look out the window, and sure enough, there would be a greedy bird gobbling up my precious grass seed for its breakfast. Well, that seed, it probably doesn't have much of a future as a plant. Other seeds fall on rocky ground. That's not much better than the path, really. Seed might germinate, it might spring up for a brief time, but it won't take root. When the sun comes up, when it's hot, it'll be scorched and fade away. Other seed falls among thorns. It might germinate, it might take root, but it'll soon be choked out by the other growth. Really doesn't have a hope. But then there is seed that falls on good soil. It germinates, it takes root. The soil has good moisture. It drains well, there's nourishment, there's a good environment, a welcoming environment for the seed, and so it produces grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Now that's the picture, that's the image, that's the story, that's the parable. And we don't yet know what it means. We follow the imagery well enough, but Jesus ends the parable there and then says this, verse 9, again on this theme of hearing, he who has ears, let him hear. That is, he who has ears to hear this, because most of the crowd will have ears in the physical sense, presumably, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, that's all actually a little bit perplexing. It's intriguing, but it feels a little bit cryptic at this point, as it, as it in fact is. The idea of hearing, of listening to what Jesus has to say, listening with faith and understanding, that's been a major theme in recent verses, of course. So this call for those who have ears to hear, let them hear, it feels loaded with meaning, but we're waiting for a bit more insight. And evidently, we're not alone in that feeling. The disciples, they felt it too. Well, what exactly is Jesus kind of getting at here? Why is he speaking in this rather cryptic way, verse 10? Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? 
It's just a little bit hard to follow here, Jesus. We see the picture. We don't really know what it means. You know, if we're aiming for simple and clear communication, if we're aiming to promote understanding here to get the kingdom message out, maybe you could consider, you know, minimizing, reducing the cryptic little stories. Might help a little. And receiving that question, Jesus takes time now to address it. He'll come to the parable itself in a moment, but now he tackles this broader issue that's been raised by the disciples. Why the parables? Why does he teach like this? You're listening to Encounter the Truth of Jonathan Griffiths and a message called Sowing the Seed of the Kingdom, part of a larger series, Living as Kingdom People. And uh, I don't know about you, but I got to stay tuned because in just a moment, Jonathan's going to come back and he's going to address that question that was asked just a moment ago. Why does Jesus teach like this, using the parables that he used? Well, whether you can stay tuned for the rest of this broadcast or not, if you ever miss part of a program or you want to go back and listen to a broadcast in its entirety, you can always do that by coming to our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org, and you can stream the program or download the MP3 for free. That's at EncounterTheTruth.org. You can also listen on the go if you have the Encounter the Truth app, and it's free. Simply go to your favorite app store and search for Encounter the Truth, and that's a great way to stay connected with Jonathan's teaching on the go and whenever it fits your schedule. And while you're at the website, in addition to you know just checking out more about the program and listening online, you can check out our Moment of Truth. That's a weekly devotional, and we'd love for you to begin to read that. Again, just go to the website, EncounterTheTruth.org, and look for Moment of Truth. Well, if you did join us a little bit late, we're in Matthew chapter 13. Let's get back to the message as Jonathan once again gets back to the question, why did Jesus teach using parables? Here is Jonathan. Why the parables? Why does he teach like this? His answer to that question, I think it comes as quite a surprise. You know, we might expect him to say, oh, are, you know, are people struggling with the parable? Oh, I see. Oh, I hadn't realized. I'm sorry. I was going for something really easy, a simple story to illustrate the point. Obviously, that was a communication strategy that actually didn't work out so well. Let me take that feedback on board and kind of change course. We'll do something different now. But what does he say, verse 11? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. The disciples assume that this understanding gap the gap between those who hear and comprehend and those who do not, they are assuming that it comes down to communication, strategy, effectiveness, ability. And they want Jesus to know that his communication method is not very effective at this point. But Jesus has something rather stunning to tell them. It's almost shocking. The understanding gap is not a matter of communication and comprehension. It is a spiritual issue. It is rooted in the work of God in the heart of the hearers, and rather than serve as a teaching device that frankly seems to fail for many hearers, the parables actually serve a rather different purpose. They serve to expose the spiritual reality of the heart of the hearer. Well, that's fascinating. 
The disciples have been given, says Jesus. That's the language he uses. The disciples have been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. God has worked within their hearts to give them understanding, to open their eyes, to enable them to see. It's a work of grace, a divine work, a work that God alone can do. But to those who do not hear and understand, end of verse 11, to them it has not been given, says Jesus. And so when Jesus speaks the word of the kingdom, and in particular when he uses parables, the crowd become more obviously divided. That's what happens. That's what the parables do. That's what they expose. Those who have been given understanding by God's grace and kindness, they're going to come to understand more, and they're going to grow in their knowledge. And those who have not, they're going to become more perplexed. And Jesus says this is actually at the heart of his purpose in the parables. It is to clarify the distinction between those who see and those who do not. You see, I think we do tend to assume that the parables are simple stories that Jesus uses to make things easy to understand. These are sort of prime Sunday school material, right? Ready for the flannel board, ready to go, ready for veggie tales to record and produce and to run with. And there's no doubt that they are teaching aids of a particular kind, but Jesus tells us that his core purpose is different. It's not just to make things as simple as possible, it is actually to filter listeners. Those who have been given spiritual insight will see and enter in and grow and mature, and those who have no spiritual understanding will simply look on baffled and then walk away. And in a sense, these simple stories, they actually serve as a kind of judgment upon the unrepentant and unbelieving. That's what Jesus is pointing to when he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, verse 14. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they barely hear, and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them." These words come from the Lord's commissioning of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6 of that book, and the prophet is given a rather depressing-sounding job, actually, when you look at his commissioning. The expected result of his preaching is going to be that people will harden their hearts, at least for a season, and reject the Lord's word. He's to go out and preach the word. Go and preach your heart out, Isaiah, but it's not going to go well, at least not initially. And Jesus says, in the case of listeners who do not hear and do not understand the word, do not receive it with faith, that's the effect of his own ministry as well. It is a prophetic ministry of that kind. And none of that, the disappointing results, the mixed results, none of that is a surprise to the Lord. It is, in fact, part of his mysterious purpose. The preaching of Jesus is, in fact, designed to draw out the fundamental distinction between his listeners. Now, at this point, we are tempted to scratch our heads just a little, I think. It's not really what we expect Jesus to say, is it? It's not what we were anticipating. We think all of his teaching is centered on an urgent appeal to get as many people as possible to understand and re respond. And of course, Jesus has this huge heart of mercy toward the lost people before him. We know that. But Jesus insists at the same time that his word, and especially his parables, will reveal the heart of the hearers. 
And for anyone to respond in repentance and faith, for anyone to respond with true spiritual understanding, here is what it's going to take. It's going to take a divine miracle in the heart. It's going to take the work of God to open the heart, to open the eyes, and to give understanding. Now, that's challenging for us to process, I think, because we like to think that we are in the driver's seat all the time. We like to think that the power resides with us. We like to think of ourselves as masters of our own particular destiny and so on. And, of course, we are individually entirely responsible for our personal response to Jesus Christ. Verse 15 speaks of the people's responsibility for their response to the Lord. No one else can be blamed. I mean, notice the language. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. It's been volitional. They've chosen this path. They're responsible. But the Bible teaches us, of course, that we are blinded by our sin. And we are indeed slaves to sin. The Bible uses language that strong. Slaves to the sin that we have so willingly embraced. Our minds and hearts in sin are darkened. They have been since the fall. And so having chosen this path corporately as a people, it actually makes profound sense that we need God's help to comprehend the word of Jesus and to accept the kingdom message. We have landed ourselves in an entirely helpless situation in our sin. We have taken ourselves down into a pit from which we cannot climb out on our own. Now, we could philosophize at great length about our freedom and our responsibility in all this. We could probe the workings of divine grace endlessly, but there is a rather more practical point to be made here within this passage, and this is what we need to take away, I think. Here it is. If we or our loved ones are struggling to understand and struggling to accept the Word of Jesus, if the light switch just won't turn on, if it feels like you are hitting a brick wall in terms of your own personal understanding of the kingdom message of the Word of Jesus, here's what we've got to do. We must plead with the Father that He would be gracious and perform that miracle of giving understanding, of opening eyes, of softening hearts. We need to plead with him that he would be gracious so as to reveal the secrets of the kingdom to open the eyes of the blind. That's where understanding starts. That's the heart of the issue. You know, we can argue the faith, and you'll have had this experience, I suspect. We can argue the faith with someone who is not yet a believer until we are blue in the face. But if the Father does not bring about a miraculous spiritual work in the heart, nothing is going to happen. There will be no effect. Jonathan Griffiths with the message, Sowing the Seed of the Kingdom. And We've been taking a look at a parable to ponder, why Jesus taught using parables, and then he began to explain them. We are going to have to pause right here, but we'll continue next time. If you ever miss a program or you want to go back and listen again, do that at EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported broadcast. We do depend on your generosity to keep this teaching on the station. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to send you a book called The Four Emotions of Christmas. And Jonathan, why did you pick this book? 
Well, I think our great hope is that the book will bring encouragement at Christmas time, both for those who know Christ and those who don't. I think Christmas is often a time of very, very mixed emotions. We know it's meant to be the most wonderful time of the year. We know it's meant to be magical, and sometimes it is, and sometimes, well, it isn't. And in this little book, Bob Lupine takes us through the emotions of Christmas and actually traces those back to the first Christmas and draws us to find our joy in Christmas, not in our circumstances or our situation, which may be great or may not be great, but to find our joy and hope at Christmas in the Lord Jesus Christ who came to be our Savior. And I think that'll be an encouragement. I think that'll be a help to all of us. Well, we would love to send you a copy of this book. Again, it's called The Four Emotions of Christmas. It's our way of saying thank you for your financial support this month. You can give a gift online when you come to EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-998-7884. That's EncounterTheTruth.org or 833-99-TRUTH. For Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.